We believe that alcoholism is a disease and that Alcoholics Anonymous is one solution to that disease. I'm here to bring you the voices of its members. Everyone that comes on the show, including myself, is an active member and has found recovery in the rooms of AA. As you listen, please take what works for you and leave the rest. My name is Amiro, and I'm an alcoholic. I have a sobriety date of September 4th, 2018, which is a little over five years and almost a month now. I have a home group, which is the Nomads Men's Stag in Sunset Beach, California, Tuesday nights at 8 o'clock. It's a book study. I have a sponsor. His name is Dan. I'm in contact with him every week. And my life has gotten exponentially better since becoming a member of Alcoholics Anonymous in a general way of uh, what it used to be like, what happened, what it's like now. I'm going to tell my story. I took my first drink when I was 10 years old. I had a good friend in the neighborhood that I grew up in here in Long Beach. His dad was an alcoholic and he was a heavy vodka drinker. And one night my friend asked me if I wanted to drink some of his vodka with him as we went out to one of our mutual friend's house. And we filled up a bottle of water with some horrible flavored vodka, something like strawberry cheesecake Smirnoff. And we drank it at this friend's house. And I will never forget that sensation of that kind of warm, oozing feeling that came over and through my chest. I remember how gross it tasted and being sick. And I also remember that a lot of my character defects, like lying, cheating, and stealing, started right away. I'm a firm believer that I'm the alcoholic that suffers from like a disease of perception, where I see things incorrectly. Maybe how most people would look at a situation, I tend to see it the opposite way. And for a long time, I thought that was a good thing until I got to Alcoholics Anonymous and I realized maybe how skewed my perspective was on many things in my life. I didn't become a heavy drinker at 10 years old by any means, but I did gain that feeling of what is that like? How can I get that again? Man, that felt good. And these are kind of themes that'll kind of follow through throughout my story and in my life when it came to drinking and using I will say that from an early age, I felt misplaced. I felt apart from rather than a part of. I grew up in a household with two immigrant parents from different continents. And being biracial, that always kind of threw me through a little bit of a different loop growing up and made it really easy to get bullied or feel different or not feel like I fit into one category or the other. and. That sense of feeling different and apart from became a big motivator in my drinking in the years to come. One of the things I'll say is that I was named after both of my grandfathers and that when my parents met, they found this to be incredibly unique that when they first met, they realized that both of their fathers had passed away the same day, the same year, 20 years before they had ever met each other. One died in the Netherlands and one died in Colombia. And this is kind of like an important part of my story that'll play out later on. But my parents agreed that if they ever had a son, 
they would name me uh, in this case after both of my grandfathers uh, in a way to kind of pay homage to them. So as growing up kind of continued, I didn't grow up in a necessarily alcoholic home, but I was subjected to alcoholism in different ways of my life. My parents split up when I was five. I spent most of my time living with my mom. And the few times that I did spend living with my dad were under more difficult living circumstances. He was between jobs a lot and didn't really have a stable income, nor did he have stable relationships with others. And I remember my first time really being uh, able to recognize the consequences of alcoholism were with him, not on his behalf necessarily, but I had a stepmom growing up who was an alcoholic. This stepmom of mine used to drink uh, two bottles of wine a night and mix it with her Ambien, her sleeping medication, and made it, I guess, just made the living arrangements really uncomfortable to be in as a child. Um, I lived there with my little brother on and off on weekends here and there and kind of witnessed my dad go through this kind of cycle of pain living with this woman and on my end recognizing wow, this is a really gross and unconventional way of living when someone consumes alcohol to this degree. Now, mind you, at this point, I'd already had that first drink, so nothing too much really came to mind. But as I got older, I started seeking out more of the drinking. I would have these kind of grandiose thoughts of those old days when I had taken that drink, thinking about when I was 10 and that warm, fuzzy feeling and how all my pain, my anxiety, those fears of not fitting in sort of dissipated around me. Throughout high school, when I really began to indulge in heavier drinking or partying, I would drink whenever I was given the opportunity. I would use drugs at their sort of convenience. Whenever I could find them, I would take them and I'd kind of carry on. At this point in my life, still not too many consequences were occurring, at least not in my mind. And I guess this kind of plays into the whole shift in perspective and how I see things differently due to my alcoholism. My alcoholism wants to tell me it's not things or consequences that I deal with or face aren't that big of a deal, or they can be cleaned up later, or they can be avoided. In high school, I was caught selling narcotics a couple of times and almost expelled for that. And I think through some grace and my higher power, uh, thankfully that didn't happen. And eventually what happened was that I, I kind of just got my shit together enough to, uh, to get into college. And I was the first one in my family to be offered the opportunity to go to a four-year college, a university, and decided to pursue my kind of educational career up to the Pacific Northwest, to Oregon. And while I was up there, the drinking would later increase and the substance use would also increase because now I had no sense of accountability from living back at home with my mom. And I felt like once I got to college, it was sort of that feeling again of being that little kid in elementary or middle school of, I don't fit in, I'm different, this is scary. All normal feelings that I would say that most people in society are able to walk through, but that I have a hard time adjusting to on my own. In college, I 
really became hooked on not only just alcohol, but other substances that I can't help but use when I'm drinking. And this got me to a point where I had decided to drop out of uh, university and to move back to Long Beach and just start my life over, I guess. This is my first sense of like a geographic or moving away or moving back would fix things. I was convinced that it was my surroundings that were really affecting me and not necessarily my using or drinking, I guess. When I moved back to Long Beach, it's kind of when the consequences of my drinking and using were really, I guess, just shot up and, and, uh, were sort of presented to me in a way that I couldn't really deny anymore. I was 20 years old and one of my early moments of clarity of having an issue with my drinking was having this job at a pizza shop as a delivery driver. And I would come home and I'd complain to my roommates every day about work. And on my way home, I would uh, pick up a few 40 ounces of malt liquor. I take them home. I smoke cigarettes in the living room against my roommate's wishes and get drunk and just sit on my little cross of woe is me and uh, complain about my day. And I remember one day my roommate coming up to me and asking me when this was going to stop. This is uh, where my, I guess, lack of perspective or inability to perceive things accurately sort of kicks in. I told him, well, I, I can't stop. I just uh, I just got this job. I thought he was talking about the job and me complaining about it. So I said, I can't stop this job. I need it. I got to pay rent, blah, blah, blah. And he says, no, man, the drinking. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, you've been on this bender, man. Like, when's this going to stop? This is unhealthy. And in my mind, I thought it had been three or four days. Maybe it was a long weekend since I worked weekends. Days of the week sort of floated in and out of my life. I wasn't really paying attention. I told him, well, it's only been three or four days. It's not that big of a deal. And he responded with, uh, no, man, it's been you know four weeks of this. And I hadn't really realized that it had been four weeks where I hadn't drawn a sober breath. It had been four weeks of chaos and causing pain to others and really holding my uh, roommates at the time emotionally hostage, to say the least. And these are sort of patterns that would continuously occur in my life. These are patterns that carry on every time I drink. When I drink alcohol, it's not fun. It's not for wanting to socialize. It's not with the intention of finding love or taste testing new spirits and wines and whiskeys and cocktails. It's it's always just about the effect that alcohol produces. I drink because I like to get drunk. That's always been the reason that I drink. Because from an early age, that's always been my experience. I get drunk when I drink alcohol, and I like that. You know, I, looking back now, I wish that could have been my wake-up call to get sober or to at least attempt sobriety or try to change my life. But I did another mini-geographic. I just moved out of that apartment and moved in with new roommates. I spent most of my drinking and using in Southern California and 
mainly in the city of Long Beach, and I would just kind of go from apartment to apartment. After that uh, fiasco, I guess, with that roommate of mine, I moved in with some other guys into a different part of town where I could uh, drink more and where I was within walking distance to most bars. I'm pretty blessed that in my drinking career, I've never mounted any serious like legal issues. But I'm definitely really lucky for that because I should have. I've driven drunk many times. I've definitely been uh, drunk and disorderly. I've definitely should have been arrested for public intoxication many times. But this sort of uh, pattern began in my life from age 20 to 23 when I got sober. That had to do with I will drink and use until there are enough consequences piled in front of me that I have to move away or find somewhere else to be or find a new group of friends to hang out with. I think I went through three more apartments until I finally got sober, three more year-long leases of holding my roommates hostage, failing to pay rent on time, inability to cover expenses, not able to contribute to anyone's life, just take and take and take until I kind of got my shit together, to be frank. When... I turned 22 years old. Um, I had developed such a dependency on alcohol that I was unable to hold down any other liquid in my body that wasn't whiskey or water. I would become violently nauseous and throw a stomach vial every morning. And I'd become so dependent on it. And I frankly just didn't even think that was really happening. I was sort of in this denial phase of this is normal. It's just a bad hangover. And I just happened to get hangovers seven days a week. It's not that big of a deal. I remember one of my first sponsors or my first sponsor telling me, asking me uh, how the insanity of alcoholism affected my life. And I remember telling him how I had a, a list on my phone of proof that I wasn't an alcoholic and didn't have a problem that since there were seven days in a week, as long as I drank for only three of them, and did not drink for four days out of the week, I was therefore non-alcoholic because four is greater than three. And that means I could justify my behavior by saying I spent most of the week sober. And I did this, I guess, accurately. I did only drink three days a week for two weeks straight um, at age 22. And later uh, would go on to celebrate for eight continuous weeks of drinking. I remember the sponsor of mine pulling me aside after telling him this. And he said, normal people don't drink like that. Normal people don't have to write down when or when they don't drink. Normal people don't have to prove themselves non-alcoholic before even identifying as one. You know, some of these really simple ideas that uh, have to do with my perception and my way of thinking uh, were just so new to me when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. I had no idea how fogged my mind was. I had no idea how how sick I'd been, to be honest. You know, and at 22, dealing with such strong dependency to alcohol and uh, other substances, too, that would come and go in my life. But the root of it was always alcohol. It was, it was whiskey. I had become a whiskey drinker from ages 21 to 23. Um, I couldn't have anything else. And I remember um, towards the very end, I was living in this apartment in Long Beach in a rougher part of town with some rougher roommates and a rougher way of life, I'll just say. And uh, 
about a week before I got sober, I was hanging off of my balcony and my apartment was directly above a bar, a little dive bar. And I was hanging off of my balcony and, and I was screaming. I was screaming at uh, people leaving the bar that had been kicked out of the bar. I was calling them names and speaking down from this holy hilltop that I thought I was on. And, um, and yeah, it was, it was, it was this kind of moment where I was just really sick and I thought I was the man and, you know, these like feelings of grandeur and like, I'm better than, and I'm yelling at these people. I'm yelling at these people. I'm like throwing my ashtray, emptying my ashtray over them. Like, I have no idea what got into me looking back at this, but just, it was just another night and it, it was nothing crazy. It wasn't even like a crazy weekender or a bender. This was just like a Tuesday for me. This was just another day where I had like succumbed to like alcoholism, where I had no fight left. And so fast forward a week from this event, it's Labor Day weekend. It's a Monday night. None of my roommates are in town. And I want to drink and I want to party and I have no one to call. So I start going through my phone and I start making calls one after another after another after another. And out of the 400 contacts in my phone, um, I realized after an hour of making calls that not a single person would take my call anymore. I had lost the few close friends that I had. I had lost the relationship with my family. My little brother at the time was thankfully getting sober and would later play a really big part in my sobriety as my Eskimo. But I felt defeated. I felt horribly defeated and alone and shameful and full of guilt. I could go through 400 contacts on my phone and not a single person would answer for me. I'd burned over 400 bridges is all I could think about. I'd caused so much pain and destruction that I wasn't really deemed worthy of hanging out with anymore. And so I decided to go out and drink alone. And I went to another dive bar in my neighborhood and uh, had a few drinks and ran into a friend of mine who I used to sell drugs to. And I asked him if he wanted to come over and drink at my house. He wasn't really a friend. He was sort of just like a guy that was really nice that I would use his kindness and take advantage of him. And so I tried to do it one more time and he said, sure, I'll come over. And do you mind if I bring some friends with me? And I said, of course. And I went and picked up some more whiskey, went back to my apartment. And sure enough, he shows up with the same five, 10 people that I had been talking shit about a week prior off of my balcony. Just coincidentally, you know, my sponsor today likes to say, is it odd or is it God? And uh, how humbling of a moment to have my dirty, despicable, disgusting apartment that I'm living in. My bedroom with the with cockroaches and piss covered mattress that I'm sleeping on, on the ground. And these people are upstairs looking at me now. They're seeing who this guy is for who I really was, which was just a sad and broken alcoholic man. Um, They thrashed my apartment and they kind of carried on with their night afterwards. And, after dealing with sort of all that, uh, I like to call forced humility and uh, shame and guilt. 
I tried to drink myself to sleep that night. I uh, drank and drank and drank. And the scariest part of that night wasn't them coming over, but it was that that night I didn't feel any of the effects produced by alcohol. That night I didn't feel drunk. I didn't feel high. Uh, I didn't feel anything. And for the alcoholic of my variety, I guess, uh, to drink that much and not feel anything is a really scary feeling. That had been my only solution for years now. The only way I could shut my brain off was through drinking. The only way I could shut off my anxiety and my fears and my shame was through drinking. And finally, it had gotten to a point where I couldn't feel anything. Nothing was working anymore. I cried myself to sleep that night. And I said the alcoholic prayer, you know, God help me. I'll do anything. And um, next morning I woke up. I had the shakes. I called my brother the first thing in the morning and I asked him if he would take me to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, he told me that if I could wait until Thursday, this was a Tuesday morning that I called him. He said that if I could wait until Thursday, that he would uh, take me to a meeting that he went to in Compton. And I said, okay, I'll do my best. And he told me I was allowed to drink between then and Thursday if I had to. And uh, I detoxed for those two days in that apartment. My roommates came home. I remember locking myself in my bedroom with two gallons of water. One was full for me to drink and one was empty for me to pee in because I was so scared to even walk out of my room and make it to the bathroom at the end of the hall. There was so much, uh, I guess, temptation, you could say, scattered around around that apartment. And after those two days of shaking and sweating and crying and, you know, hallucinating at some points, my brother and his sponsor at the time came and picked me up and they drove me to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. This was my first time. Uh, I walked into the 435 Alano Club on Compton Boulevard on a Thursday night to the Wilson Park meeting. And I had my first spiritual experience. What happened was that I saw a man there who was 26 years old taking a three-year chip. And I realized that I had the same, well, looking back, right, I had the same sobriety date as him, you know. Uh, he had been sober for three years longer than me. And I saw this man that had also gotten sober at 23 years old, a man that looked nothing like me, who did not have the same upbringing as me, who did not grow up in the same neighborhood as me, but he shared the same feelings that I did. And he told my story when he was telling his own. He took his cake and the room was full of laughter and uh, really strong coffee. Yeah, I don't know. It gets me emotional still thinking about it. He was, um, I just heard myself in his story. I remember after the meeting, uh, I stepped outside and I was uh, shaking, trying to light a cigarette. And he came up to me and he shook my hand and he said, I'll see you at the men's stag on Monday. And I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what a stag was. And he told me, welcome home. 
And he looked me in the eye, you know, uh, I, I felt, uh, I'm a pretty tall and big guy. And I just felt seen for the first time in so long. You know, that was my first miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, that kind of began my journey. Found a sponsor when I had, I think, eight or nine days sober. And I started working the steps to the best of my ability. My sponsor told me that if I gave it my wholehearted best effort for a year and I wasn't happy with the results, he would buy me a drink and that my misery would be returned to me. And uh, I followed his every move. I just followed his direction. That meeting in Compton uh, became my home group for that first year of sobriety. And the men and women there, without a doubt, changed every aspect of my life. They would. It was an old school meeting, and that's not for everybody. I get that. But it was one of those meetings that was set down and, in their words, shut the fuck up. I remember trying to raise my hand there trying to force a share, even though there was a leader that would call on people and the old timers would gently tap my, uh, tap my arms to put my hand down and would whisper in my ear, nothing you say will help anyone here. Why don't you just be a sponge and listen? These are the sort of, I guess, I don't know. These are the things that, that, that meant the world to me. These are the things that, uh, made so much sense. I mean, yeah, it hurt in the moment. Yeah. I was a little stabbed to my ego, but they treated me with love and respect, even when I heard things that I didn't want to hear. They were never mean. They were never callous. They were, they were honest. They were happy. And they had something that I didn't have just yet. And I was willing to kind of go to any length to make sure that I could achieve that too. At the end of my first year of sobriety, I had my next big spiritual experience, which was calling my mom on my one year, a woman that I'd put so much pain through and, uh, and caused so much harm and distrust. And I told her, it's my one year. Aren't you proud of me? And she was crying on the phone. And I said, are you crying out of happiness? Are these tears of joy? And my mom says, no, I'm crying because today is my dad's birthday. The same man that I was named after. 24 years prior, my grandfather, Amiro, I had no idea what his birthday ever was. I found out that was, that's my sobriety date. I feel like moments like that don't just happen to regular people. Um, and if they do, they're really pivotal. But to the alcoholic, they mean even more. You know, that, that moment, that conversation with my mother was proof that like a God had existed in my life this whole time, that a higher power was looking after me and that something else was there. You know, over these five years, I have not by any means done everything correctly in Alcoholics Anonymous. There have been a lot of ups and downs. I do know that one of the biggest lessons I've learned in Alcoholics Anonymous was the importance of just staying to keep coming back. I know that um, when I had one year, I decided to take a week off of my meetings as a celebration, uh, which doesn't really make a whole lot of sense looking back at it, but that's what my brain told me to do at the time. And uh, that one week turned into 
15 months of being dry without a meeting. I stepped away from Alcoholics Anonymous completely. I white knuckled it. And my life got so miserable so fast that I found the only solution to be suicide. You know, I'd gotten to a point um, with two-ish years sober where I had nothing to rely on. I had no prayer left. I had no higher power that I was seeking a relationship with. I had no none of those friends from AA in my life because I refused to take their calls or talk to them or reach out. And I was full of self-pity. And the craziest part for me was that I hadn't taken a single drink, and yet I was in so much pain. I just kind of wished I had drinking. Because I thought that would be easier than walking through what I had to deal with. You know, I'm the stubborn alcoholic, the type that burns his hand on the stove over and over that it chars and eventually falls off. And instead of learning my lesson, I put the other hand on the stove and start burning it to see if it'll be different this time. You know, thankfully, what happened is same way I hit my knees the day before I got sober, I hit my knees again. I prayed to a higher power. I asked for help. And, um, I had a spiritual experience. I was on a drive up to Oxnard with a friend of mine who was a normie. And I told him that I was planning on killing myself and that I just wanted to tell him. And uh, on the drive down from Oxnard, we stopped at a pawn shop for some reason. Something overcame me to stop at a pawn shop. And I walk into the pawn shop and in there, is a cross and while i was raised catholic i've never i still to this day i'm not a practicing catholic by any means but you know i've always associated that cross with christianity and catholicism I'm like ah that's not really my my jazz i'm not interested but i saw this cross and a little gold chain around it and a, and a nice little purple stone in the middle and something overcame me. Something overcame me to buy it. This this chain cost like 500 bucks. And this was during the pandemic. And I had one of my, uh, my uh, stimulus checks deposited in my account. And I spent the 500 bucks in the moment. I have no idea what overcame me. But I bought this gold chain. And uh, with this little cross on it. And my buddy's like, why did you buy that? And I'm like, I have no idea. But who cares? Let's go home. And the second I put it on, I felt a lot better. And on the drive home, I kept looking at it and holding it and touching it. And the next day I went to work and I'm showing my my boss the cross. And she says, Do you know what kind of stone that is? And I said, No, I don't. And I still uh, don't know off the top of my head, so I don't remember it exactly. But when she looked it up, she showed me that it was the stone or the the ruby or whatever it was of sobriety. So like yet again, I'm having this moment where I've come to my knees, I'm praying for help, I'm asking for a sign, and my higher power in my life, the same way he gave me the opportunity to recognize my sobriety date and its relation to the man I'm named after, I got yet another spiritual experience. I realized that in this moment, oh my God, I have to go back to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I called my sponsor. And he said that he missed me and that he was waiting for me to call. 
and he took me to a meeting that night, and I haven't left since. You know, celebrating these five years of sobriety earlier in the month, though, a lot of the guys in Compton used to say, well, what a miracle your head finally popped out of your ass. And I used to be so offended back before I had five years. And I'd be like, well, why did I always say that? And I get it now. I think I'm starting to get it because I'm just starting to understand how little I really know and how much room there still is to grow in this program. I've had these incredible experiences where I've worked all 12 steps, where I have the luxury of walking other men through steps today. I've made financial amends. I have walked others through difficult parts of their lives. I have walked myself through hard parts of my life, knowing that it's just me and my higher power by my side. And things have never gotten worse. Things have never gotten worse. They've only gotten better. One of the things I try to tell the men that I sponsor today is that, uh, is to just, to just keep trying to keep coming back. What's the worst case scenario? Your life will get better. Your body will heal. Your brain will get smarter. I don't, well, I'll take that back. I don't know about smarter, but something will happen. You'll probably have a change of perspective the way I look at things, you know. But Alcoholics Anonymous is the best thing that's ever happened in my life. I've met my closest friends in Alcoholics Anonymous. I've met my, I've met roommates. I've met employers. I've met people that have shown up for me and taken my call at four o'clock in the morning. I've met every walk of life. I have such an immense amount of gratitude for this program that has saved my life and all the people inside of it that have contributed to my life, to my quality of living over these past five years that I don't know how I could ever repay it. And um, I hope that I get to keep coming back for many, many, many more years. This is the best thing that I've ever done for myself. It's the greatest investment I've ever made. Um, and in my experience, it doesn't take a whole lot to stay around here. It just takes a little bit of willingness, a little bit of service, and a little bit of prayer. And uh, things will work themselves out. And I think that's it, Tara. Thank you, sir. Okay, I'm going to ask you a few questions. When you returned after your celebration of one year, 15 months later, to the rooms of AA, did you return back to your home group or did you, how did you literally, what did that look like in terms of getting back in the fold besides calling your sponsor? So when I returned, it was still that kind of gray zone of COVID where some meetings were opening back up in person and some were not. That old home group of mine in Compton had not been open to in person yet, but my sponsor was involved with a few sober livings where he had been doing panels that that were offering their backyards around a fire pit to host meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous for just AA members. And so what it looked like was I started going to those backyard meetings every week and I would do Zoom on the other days of the week. And slowly but surely things started opening up and one of the uh original houses that we had that meeting at in its backyard around the fire pit ended up being shut down and we were able to find a room that we were able to rent out in the back of a vape shop in costa mesa 
And we helped found a meeting that's still active there today called the Big Book Bunch. And our book study is kind of still alive. I don't go to it anymore, but it's a nice little hub for young people, AA, that's still around. And uh, that's that's where I ended up spending most of that first year back in AA. Uh, most of my days were in Orange County. Where's the necklace now? It's hanging above my head right now. I'm in my bedroom. I have it hanging over my door. Nice. All right. Yeah. I, I look at it every day. I've... Uh, I I play in some bands and I've messed it up a couple times at shows, jumping around and moshing with people. So I found it better to hang it in a place where I could have damaged it much more. And so I keep it above my bed and next to my front door. And I just touch it every morning on my way out. And I touch it every night before I say my prayers and do my meditation. I really love the story of your grandfather and it your sobriety date being his birthday which by the way is my mother's birthday just have to like make it about me for a second yeah when you said your sobriety date and that was my very first sobriety date i just didn't get to keep it yeah Um, but yeah also my mom's birthday but i feel like your grandfather wanted you to have the necklace i i think so too that's you know my uh my higher power, or I guess a version of my higher power that I pray to today is both of my grandfathers that I'm named after, because since I never got to meet them, and I never grew up knowing them. They had passed away already. Uh, when I was little, my mom used to say that they were my guardian angels. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's who I pray to at night. I feel like there should be no limit in our in, in what we pray to. I'm like, I got ancestors, I got spirit guides, I got yeah. angels, I got God, I got them all. We're all just yeah. working together, man. It takes a community to help this alcoholic. Totally, totally. <laughs> I need a couple gods. I need a couple people looking out after me. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Oh, and it's so easy to have deep love for me when I think of my lineage and my family. It's easy for me to have affiliation with them. Sometimes it's a little bit harder, especially in the beginning to pray to this higher power that I haven't established a relationship with yet easier now because I have the data points. Like you've had several spiritual experiences. So you have these experiences to lean on and, and point to, yeah, this, this bigger thing exists. What does your spirituality look like today? So you had mentioned a little bit about Catholicism, but, um, not really what your practice looks like today for step 11. So I don't think I meditate as often as I should, but I definitely meditate multiple times a week. My 11th step to me, it's funny. I was recently working with a sponsee on his 11th step. And there's this part in the big book when describing the 11th step that says that we meet God at a point of neutrality when we work on our prayer and meditation. And it really stood out to me this what did it mean? What did Bill mean when writing the book and saying a point of neutrality? And what we've kind of, Mike Swansea and I came to terms with was that in order for me to really be present and practice, I guess, a more honest meditation or seeking a deeper, more intimate relationship with my higher power, I have to be at a point where I'm, in essence, mellowed out enough, mm-hmm. where I'm willing to accept whatever comes my way rather than thinking 
I have to pray for what comes my way. I have to pray for this new job. I have to pray for the ability to meditate more. I have to pray for, let me be more patient with this foncee that's pain in my butt, whatever it is. But instead, this point of neutrality oftentimes means if I trust the process, oftentimes I'll look back and the kind of trials and tribulations I've been through will make sense to where I am today and how it's unfolded. I've stopped seeking the answer and focused more on what can I do to trust the process more. And for me, trusting the process means meditating and reading the spiritual experience out of the back of the big book and prayer. You know, I pray multiple times a day, sometimes just having a bad day. I'll just have to stop in the middle and say, I have to do the third step or the seventh step or the Lord's prayer or the serenity prayer, just something to get out of myself. And one of the things that was taught to me by some of the old timers in Compton that I now use with my sponsorship with my men is that a spiritual experience is nothing more than a shift in perspective. All I have to do is be willing to see things differently, and that in itself is a spiritual experience. I'm blessed that I've had a couple of these burning bush moments where it's like, whoa, clearly there's something looking after you. I tell my guys, don't wait for that to assume you have had a spiritual experience. If you're able to change your perspective today compared to where you were six months ago, six years ago, then you already have had one. And That's what my goal is when practicing an 11 step. My goal is to listen, to sit quietly and think about what it means. I was at an AA retreat this weekend and I just got in this morning. My sponsor was there and he was telling me how he was talking with my grand sponsor about what is God and what's a good way to visualize God and that his sponsor described it as a, in a river full of love, constantly flowing, but with nothing else than love and, and as its body that makes it up. And my sponsor says, yeah, I've been working with that recently. And this is a guy with 34 years who's still changing his interpretations and, and, and his thought process and his perspective on a higher power and how it shows up in his life. And uh, so I try to stay God-centered. I try to stay God like close to that rather than apart from. I try to not think of my meditation and my prayer routine as something that I have to do in the morning and at night, but more so something that can help me get through my day. That's a huge shift from checking it off the list to being present and a part of the process. Totally. It's a huge shift for me because I was very much, I'm trying to meditate. Stop interrupting me. Yeah, you know? yeah <laughs> it's like... totally. Same, same. <laughs> That's how I was in the beginning. I was so caught up with like, okay, I was quiet for 10 minutes. What? What did I gain from that? You know? (laughs) I'm not floating. It didn't work. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It didn't work. And I was so caught up with like expecting a result that I kind of was missing the like beauty of, oh, it was quiet for 10 minutes. When's the last time I've had a quiet 10 minutes? And some of my like favorite meditations I've ever had weren't really that enlightening. They were just quiet and peaceful for 10 minutes. I'm like, holy shit, my brain shut off for 10 minutes? That's a miracle. That's a miracle. That is a miracle. (laughs) So you must know Bear from the meeting you mentioned? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I just recorded him. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think he's the episode right before you. 
And uh, he mentioned that meeting as well. Definitely an old school meeting. Yeah. 1962, yeah, very... I think he said. And did he say there was only been four secretaries ever since 1962? I believe there's only been three and he's the third one. Oh my goodness. That's crazy. That's great. His grand sponsor was the first and over there, their commitments are for life. That's and the man who took his birthday at my first meeting is still the secretary of that men's stag there. Because I go to it every once in a while with my guys, and I'll take them whenever they're in a rut. And I'm like, okay, you guys are going to too much young people. Hey, let's let's take it back to basics here. I'm taking you to the Compton. I'll take them there, and I see him, and he and I chat. And we talk at least once a month now, and um, just check in on each other. And he's still there. His baby's all big, and like life is just beautiful. And they get to kind of see firsthand all the stories that I talk about of that meeting. And bear was bear was there. Bear was one of the guys that shook my hand and told me to come back and that he'd see me at the next meeting. Mm. What about your brother? So your brother was smart enough to show up with his sponsor. <laughs> yeah. My brother is, uh, is, is, um, did not keep that sobriety date that he had at the time. My brother has a different story than mine. My brother's had, 11 relapses and this is his 12th time getting sober and he's coming up on four years next month which is the longest time he's ever had he's my roommate he's in the next room over right now as we're speaking <laughs> and uh he's he just works probably the best program I've, i i strive to work a program as good as his he is so like you can call him on a bad day and ask him uh he works like a pretty basic like shitty retail job and you can ask him like how was work today he'll say it was amazing it was a shit day but it was amazing because like god helped me wake up and i thank him every morning for that and he's just he's my best friend you know and i i'm so blessed that i get to trudge along with him and we have the same home group and you know we keep our program separate but it's it's beautiful when they get to kind of cross over once a week at our meeting and he sponsors men today and i just i don't know i he's my little brother but i look up to him like he's like this old wise guru cuz he has so much life experience and he has a way crazier story than mine so we'll have to get him on here next for sure oh yeah he's so like calm like i'm very much the outspoken like big flamboyant one and he's just very like Oh, it's okay. Everything's fine. And then you hear his story and you're like, what the hell? This kid's crazy. And he's, he's, uh, turning, he's turns 25 in November and in December he takes his four years. Oh, what a, what a life both of you have in front of you, a life of sobriety. You're just little puppies. Yeah, I, 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 I mean, I was by far the youngest one in that, in that Compton meeting when I showed up there at 23 years old, you know, because uh, some of the old timers were like, they hit you with the, I've spilt more liquor than you've ever drank, you know, kind of stuff. And I'd be like, what the fuck? Like, but all those guys were sober because the, 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 the saying that they all live by at that Compton meeting is we don't drink no matter what, no matter what. Is there anything that you're thinking of now that you did not share that you would like to share? Yeah, I guess the only thing I, I usually say when I'm speaking at a meeting is for the newcomer that there's two days you never have to worry about. That's yesterday and tomorrow. It's always been a one day at a time program and it always will be. If you keep it that way, I think the days will pile up a lot quicker than if you plan them out. Very nice. Thank you so much for your service and your time. 
Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This is super cool that I got to do this. For more information, read the first 164 pages of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous or visit keepcomingback.net.